Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. Good morning, everybody. Griffin and Michaela, look how your section grew. See, you just drew them in. You were holding it down, and then by the end of worship, you've like quadrupled your section. Well done. Well done. So good to see you this morning. Glad you are here. Uh, how about those Orioles? Yeah? Yeah, okay. Listen, first service, they are Oriole agnostics, I guess. I threw that out there. No reaction. Just look. I know. I know it's, I don't know what happened, but I, I mean, now I, I, do recognize there are some in the house you could care less about baseball that's okay gotcha understand but even if you're just casual you need to know that there's a little bit of orioles magic running around right now the for the first time and i think what seven years was 2016 the last time something like that seven or eight years they are in the playoffs they've won over 100 games Best team in the AL, they're the number one seed. And nobody, if you follow baseball, nobody predicted the Orioles would be that good this year. They thought that with all the young players that they have, they're moving in a good direction. It'll be, be a couple more years until they're like contending for the playoffs. And they are, not only did they get in, they're the number one seed in the American League. They have uh, first home playoff game this coming Saturday and next Sunday. Um, Please come to church. And <laughs> I don't know, whenever I'm like, I always look around on Sunday, I'm like, oh, Ravens are home this week. It's like, you know how it goes. I get it. I understand. Um, and, and I know not everybody loves baseball. Baseball can be an acquired taste. It can be a very long, slow, boring game. I, it's, it is a little better this year. They shorten it down a little bit. They've got some timers and things like that. Um, for me, I love every part of baseball. I like even the boring stuff because I grew up around it. So there's nostalgia in it for me. It, it you know, reminds me of the warm feels from when I was a kid learning about baseball and watching it on TV. And back in the day, we didn't have ESPN or apps or anything. We had to read newspapers and watch the news to get information about sports. And so I would pour over the details and when our family had a little bit of extra money and wanted to make a trip, we'd go to a Phillies game maybe once a year. My granddad would take me on a bus trip to Phillies games once a year. And so I grew up playing baseball, thinking baseball, imagining baseball. And so I just have really enjoyed the game initially because of my love for the game and now just because of the memories and the relationships that have come along with it. Our oldest son, my 11-year-old, my Kendra and I's oldest son, Chase, he shares my love for baseball. And so that's been an easy way for us to bond. Our younger son, Isaiah, who's six, could care less about baseball too boring for him he likes nascar goes a lot faster and so we bond over race cars and stuff like that but chase and i some of you know one of the ways that we are uh one of the things we just enjoy it's been a bonding thing for us is we made a decision when he was three or four he said dad I, before i graduate high school would it be possible for us to see all 30 major league baseball stadiums and without doing the math i said absolutely buddy and so you know, we started with the ones we could drive to, and it's gotten expensive since then, but we set aside a certain amount of money every year and say, all right, that's our baseball money. We'll stretch it as far as we can. And so the two of us together, I've seen 12 stadiums now, and um, I've seen like 25, uh, but some of them, like, you know, I've seen both Yankee stadiums, both Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, both Phillies, and they move around a lot. So it's been a great way to see the country. And really for the two of us, you know, it was initially about baseball. Now it's just we enjoy traveling together. Um, baseball is weird because unlike football or basketball or hockey or even soccer, it's up to each individual stadium owner as to what the field looks like. There's a couple things that are standard, you know, the, the distance from the 
the pitcher's mound to the home plate has to be the same everywhere, and the distance around the bases has to be the same. But every stadium, they can choose how much foul territory do we have, how long the field is, how high the fences are. So it's, there's no other sport like that that lets you do that. And some people find that really maddening. We really like it because, I mean, every stadium you go to, there's some unique things about the field that are unique to that stadium. And so we've traveled to lots of different cities, lots of different stadiums, um, and they're all different. And yet every baseball event in this country starts the same way. Do you know how that is? Do you know what they do before the game even starts? They all start the same way. Okay, I heard National Anthem, Star Spangled Banner. Yeah, they sing a song. Every game starts with a song. And the song it starts with happens to be the National Anthem of the United States called the Star Spangled Banner. Now, do you know why that hits a little bit different here in Baltimore? Okay, it originated here. It was written here. Um, You know who wrote it? Okay. Man, you are on it today. Can some of you come at nine and help me out a little bit? Francis Scott Key, a Baltimorean. I don't like Baltimorean. But he, he, he wrote it. And it's interesting. He, he writes the song. And the song, actually, it talks about a historic event, but it tells it in the form of a song. Uh, what historic event does it talk about? And I realize there's a history teacher in the room who knows all the answers. To this. Okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> it was the War of 1812. But the song tells about an event that happened not in 1812, but in 1814. Yes, yes, that's okay. We're round, no, we're rounding up. We're rounding up. You might be right. The Kennedy Institute might be wrong. I don't know. But 1814, in the month of September, written by a man named Francis Scott Key, who wasn't at that time a recording artist. He was a lawyer. And in 1812, when the U.S. declared war against Great Britain, Francis Scott Key was not an initial fan of this idea because he said, this is not going to go well for us because at that time, Francis Scott Key said, "Um, you know, it's not a really good economic idea to declare war on your major trade partner. This might not be good for us financially. And so he was a little lukewarm towards the idea. But in uh, 1814, in the month of August, um, something happened that changed his mind. At that point, some of the British ground troops actually attacked Washington, D.C. Have you read about this in your history books? What'd they do there? They burned it down to the ground. And that was a real blow to the morale. That really, it was a downer to the people. It was discouraging. Um, and in Francis Scott Key's heart, it, it inspired him to say, you know what, I'm, this, we need to win this thing. This can't be the end of our story. And so he did something very unconventional to try and help. He gets in a rowboat and he paddles out on the Patapsco River to a British warship with the intention of him and his traveling party having a sit down with some British officers and trying to negotiate the release of some American POWs. And so, I mean, not necessarily the most, it's pretty brave to go after, a, you know, go after a warship with a rowboat. I've heard pastors say, you know, let's charge hell with a water pistol. Um, this is kind of that. He paddles out to the thing. And different age and time, they welcome him aboard. They have a meal together. And the conversation, by his own account, goes pretty well. At the end of the evening, now keep in mind, you know, his, his rowboat is docked to the warship. The warship is moving along in whatever direction it's going. And he finds... he. 
realizes at the end of the conversation where the boat is headed. It's headed from Washington. Well, it's headed from Washington towards Baltimore. And when he goes to get off the boat in the rowboat, the rowboat, the rowboat, the British officers say, not so fast. You can't leave. You know too much. Because he realized at that point that they were about to launch a surprise attack and do the same thing in Baltimore that they did in Washington. So they said, you go down below. And after we're all done doing what we're going to do, we'll release you. And so Francis Scott Key, probably much to his horror, now has a front row twilight seat to watch what would become the attack on Fort McHenry, right here, eight miles as the crow flies from here. And so it, he starts to see things at dusk, because if you're going to surprise somebody back then, you know, you do it under the cover of night. And the thing he remembers seeing clearly as the sun goes down is that at that time, the American flag still flew over Fort McHenry. Well, it gets dark, and then according to historic accounts, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500 rockets are lobbed towards Fort McHenry from these British boats. And so the only time he can actually see what's going on at nighttime is like when the rockets illuminate, the rockets red glare illuminates a little bit at a time. And he's fully expecting because of everything that's happened in the war that when the sun, you know, when, when the dawn breaks, what flag is he expecting to see over Fort McHenry? He's expecting to see the British flag fly. But much to his surprise, you know, when the dawn breaks and the haze clears a little bit in the morning, he asks the question, do you see the same flag this morning that I saw last night? Oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed? At when the, what, the last thing we saw when, during twilight, we see the same thing this morning. And so he sees that somehow, some way, in spite of the direction things had been going in the war so far, those persistent, courageous, tenacious, stubborn defenders at Fort McHenry were still flying the U.S. flag overnight, and his heart was so moved by that that he pulls out an envelope, which you can still see today. We have it, and he writes out this poem that we put, actually put to the music of a popular drinking song at the time, which is another part of the story, which we'll leave for later. It doesn't tell as nice. And it led to eventually what would become probably the, the most easily recognizable six notes in our music catalog, Oh Say Can You See? By the dawn's early light, what so proudly we hailed at twilight's last gleaming. And he writes about his emotional response to what he saw as an eyewitness to history. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because if you were to go write a historic essay about the Battle of Fort McHenry, you probably wouldn't think the place I need to start is a piece of music. Because it's a song. In fact, Inside of that song, let me ask you a question. Does he ever name the war? Does he name any of the British commanders on the boat? No. Does he name any of the defenders? No. Does he tell you how the war started? Does he tell you how it ends? No. In fact, he leaves a lot of strategic detail out. But still, good piece of music. Still a valuable source of understanding what was going on in his hearts and mind. It tells parts of the story. We just don't press too hard on songs to provide for us the answer to strategic, scientific, or historic details, if that makes sense. Does it make sense, at least, to you? Okay. Why do I share all that? Because the Bible starts the same way a baseball game does. It starts with a song. Genesis chapter 1 is a piece of literature 
that takes on the form of a song in poetic verse. Genesis chapter 2 is historical narrative. And what that reminds us is how remarkable this book is. The Bible is a piece of literature. Do you agree with that? Okay, first service just looked at me. I'm glad you're with me. Okay. It's a piece of literature. It's, it's more than a piece of literature to me and to this family. But it's not less than a piece of literature. It is 66 books written by about 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years in three languages. And it tells one continuous story from beginning to end. And yet, there's no uh, contradiction in the story. And these men and women never sat down and had like, they never whiteboarded out the whole, the whole book. But within this book are different forms of literature. There is poetry in this book. Where would you go if you wanted to find good poetry in this book? Psalms. And yet, there's poetry in other parts of the Bible too, including Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is Hebrew poetry. There is repetition, there are stanzas, there are structures. If you were writing an essay, you would never repeat the same phrase 38 times, like Genesis 1 does. Your teacher would give you not good marks if you were writing a term paper and just repeating yourself over and over and over and over and over again. But if you were writing poetry, it'd be different. There's other types of literature in the Bible. There is, probably one of your favorites is narrative. That's stories. How many of you like the stories, the Bible stories? You've got some of that in Genesis, a little in Exodus, some in Leviticus, the numbers, a lot in Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, first, the Kings, the Samuels, they're loaded with stories. Then you've got poetry and you've got proverbial statements. You've got law in here. Law, lists, and genealogies are in here. I'm a, I love making a good list, but it's hard to read through someone else's sometimes. But there's lists in here. You read those lists with different expectations than you do reading a story. And you read a story with different expectations than when you read through song lyrics. Knowing what kind of literature it is sets your expectations for what you're supposed to gain from it. You have stories in the New Testament, the Gospels. That's why we love the Gospels so much. They're filled with historical narrative, historical prose. Acts is filled with that. But then you get into parts of the New Testament that are epistles. They're letters. And you... You read them a little differently, and you study them a little, study them a little differently. You want to know who wrote it, when they wrote it, who they wrote it to, what, was, what were the initial here. There's a whole different structure to a letter that if you understand it, you can mine out from it what's supposed to be in there. You also have apocalyptic writing. Some of you love, I mean, you dig into Revelation, and every six months you have a different idea about you know, who the Antichrist is and where the horsemen are coming from, and, and i I enjoy reading them. I'll be honest, apocalyptic writing. Oop, this page is about falling out of my Bible. That's unfortunate. I've been on that one. <laughs> it's the one I always joke. It's the Genesis 1 page. Like, look, it's seriously coming, coming out of the Bible. Um, but we need that one. Most of you who have ever felt bad about not reading the Bible enough, you know Genesis 1, right? You've been back there. You've read it a thousand times. And by the time you get to Genesis 4, you're like, this is weird. You know, like, who are these people? And where did they come from? And who had those kids? And I thought they were there. And what are Nephilim? And why are they? Maybe I'll just skip ahead to Moses, and then we'll go to the Gospels, right? We'll just, um, there's so many different types of literature in the Bible. But I want you to see Genesis 1 is, it's a song. It's a poem. And that gives us a clue as to what we should expect to know and what God wants us out of Genesis 1. I think if God wanted to give you a lot of scientific detail about how the world began, he would have picked a different kind of literature here. He probably would have picked like how it's written in Genesis chapter 2, historical prose and narrative. 
answering a lot of the how questions. Because most of us, uh, when we come to Genesis chapter 1, we ask a lot of questions that begin with the word how. In fact, it could be argued that Genesis chapter 1 is the most famous piece of literature in the world, the most widely read piece of literature. And most humans, when we come to Genesis 1, we come there with our how questions. How did the world begin? How did it happen? How did God make things? Did he use evolution or not? Did it happen in one 24-hour period or seven 24-hour periods? How long did it take? What about the dinosaurs? How do we account for them? How do we account for cells? How do we account for all the different questions that we have going to go in here? How old is the earth? Is it a young earth? Is it an old earth? Was there a gap in between the days? Why did God rest? Lots of great questions. In fact, probably some of you came today, know we were talking about Genesis 1, are like, okay, let's hear Pastor Phil's take on this to factor into all the other takes on this. We want to know how. And what I would suggest to you is that maybe how the world began is a little less important than why the world began. The answer to how questions are important, but they don't necessarily change the trajectory of our lives. But why questions have a big influence on how you live. Knowing how the world was made in great scientific detail may satisfy a lot of curiosity. It will absolutely add credibility to the Bible. In fact, the whole New Testament depends on Genesis. It's quoted 200 times in the New Testament more than any other book. The writers of the New Testament absolutely believe the truth of Genesis. And if you dispute Genesis, the rest of the Bible falls apart. So it's very important. What I can tell you is something you've already discovered. There's a lot of brilliant brilliant Christian men and women who have written scholarly articles and books about how the world began, and not all of them agree. They don't all agree on how old the earth is. They don't all agree on how long it took for God to make it. They don't all agree on whether there is any evolutionary uh, component to how we, you know, you have Christian evolutionists, which is an interesting juxtaposition of words. You, they don't agree on how old the earth is, or is it really millions of years old? Is it only 6,500 years old? Did God create it with the appearance of age? Did he do it in 24-hour days? Did he do it in God-sized days? Did he do it in eras or spans? There's lots of great articles and books written. They don't all agree. And yet, somehow, I'm still saved. And yet, somehow, I know that there is a God who loves me, who is real, I believe that he has a son named Jesus who, by putting my faith in him, has resulted in a brand new life for me that's different from any life I've ever experienced before. And there's a peace that I have in knowing him. And all that exists outside of me having resolved all the how questions. That doesn't mean they're unimportant. I would just say they don't have as much salvific importance to me as the why questions. Why did God make this world? Why do I feel the way about him and myself? Why do I interact with nature the way that I do? Why was I put here? Why did God choose to speak this world into existence? And the first chapter of the Bible could have been a scientific breakdown on how God did it. We have about a sentence and a half of how God did it. 
but we have a lot more on why he did it. And it comes to us in the form of a song. So all that means is we have to be careful how hard we press Genesis 1 to give us the historic account of how it happened. It's a song. And songs aren't written necessarily to tell us the how, but this song gives us the why. So if I expect you to hear this as a song, I asked Brent to come and help me this morning. I shared with him um, my notes and I said, you know, what do you think about this? He's like, it might be cool if you're trying to explain that Genesis 1 is a song, if as you read part of it, I just played a little score underneath it, not to drown you out, but to help people see this as a song. Songs have verses and chorus and repetition, and I want to draw out the repetition for you here. You have a couple phrases that are repeated over and over and over. Can you guess what some of those phrases are? It is good. Yes, that's kind of like the, the end of each phrase, right? God said, you'll see that a lot. It happened. You'll see that next. God saw what happened. God said it was good. And then evening came and morning came. End of verse one. End of verse two. End of verse three. So let me read to you in their entirety, verses one through five. And then I'll just skim the rest of the chapter, drawing out the repetitious parts of poetry. See if you pick it out. Here we go. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and it was empty and darkness covered the deep waters. Now we see the, another person of the Trinity here. And the spirit of God was hovering. Unique word means fluttering like a mother hen over her chicks. Fluttering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. Then he separated light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. And evening passed and morning came the first day. Let me just skim through the rest of the chapter. Then God said, let there be a space between waters. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters and God called the space sky and evening passed and morning passed, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together so ground, dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the water seas and God saw it and it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation. And God saw it, and it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky. And that is what happened. God made two great lights, one to govern the day, a smaller one to govern the night. And God saw it, and it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, Marking the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish. Let the skies be filled with birds. So God created them. And God saw it. And it was good. He blessed them. And evening passed. And morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce every sort of animal. God made all sorts of animals. And that is what happened. God saw it. And it was good. Now we're at verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They'll reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, 
and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, govern it, reign over the fish, the birds, the animals. Then God said, look, I've given you everything you've ever needed. Verse 30, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw it was very good. An evening passed, and morning came. And that marks the sixth day. And that's the end of the creation song. Thank you, Brent. Appreciate you, man. So it's a song. This is not someone writing a history book. This is someone taking what God revealed to them and putting it in the form of poetry. And you heard those phrases. There's a pattern. God said, it happened. And then God saw it. And then he assessed it. It's good. And it repeats, God said, it happened, God saw, it was good. God said, it happened, God saw, it was good. And at the end of every verse of the song, you get kind of an indication that verse is over. And then evening came, what's the next part? And morning came. So I'm just trying to draw out for you the pattern here. And there's a whole sermon baked inside of that that I can't share today. When God speaks, it happens. And when, he, when it happens, God sees it. God always intends to see what he speaks. He doesn't just speak to give you a carrot dangling out in the future. If God has spoken over you, spoken to you, God fully expects to see it. And what he speaks over your life is not death. It's not evil. It's good. Zephaniah chapter 1 says he sings a song to you, about you, over you always, that you're good, that you're beautiful, that you are the apple of his eye. That came from the Bible, not Stevie Wonder. That you're his most beautiful creation. The Bible is clear that God sings song lyrics to you, over you, and about you. And so we see in Genesis chapter 1, the Bible begins with a song. In fact, that's our big idea. I only have two points today because I promised to give you time back from where I went over time last week, so you'll be fine. Big idea is that the Bible opens with a song. The song reveals to us two things. It does reveal to us how the world began. Well, Pastor, you just said it's, we're not supposed to lean on it for that. We're not supposed to lean on it for more than what it gives us, but I will show you in just a few moments that it does, this song actually does give us a response to how the world began, it's a short response. And it doesn't answer all of our questions, but I think it's sufficient if you really believe it to be true. Bible tells us how the world began through this song, but more importantly, it reveals to us why the world began. So this song, we'll look at the first four verses of it today, how the world began, why it began. So let's tackle that first one. What does the opening song of the Bible tell us about how the world began? Here we go. Point number one. The details of how the world began are simply this. That God created it out of nothing by speaking it into existence. That's the simplest form, including all the necessary ingredients, 
of what, Bi what the Bible says is the answer to how did the world begin? How did the universe begin? And the Bible's answer is that God created it out of nothing by speaking it into existence. God is the who. Created it is the how. Out of nothing is the from what. And by speaking it into existence is the strategic scientific method he deployed to create everything out of nothing. In Genesis 1, we don't necessarily have a clear answer to exactly how long did it take. Well, six days. Well, how long were those days, Pastor? 24-hour days? Indefinite number of days? God-sized days? I don't know. A thousand years is as a day. A day is as a thousand years. Is that God giving us an absolute key that we're supposed to apply to all Scripture? Or is he making a metaphorical device to explain to us that our version of time is not like God's version of time? Time doesn't apply to God. Two great arguments you can make. At the end of the day, I don't know, and I would argue to you, at the end of the day, it has limited importance to me. Because I didn't have to understand any of that to be saved. I'm curious to know, absolutely. And I'm not trying to sidestep anything. What I'm saying to you, though, is that in this passage, and I'm trying to be disciplined, I'm not approaching this as a topic. I'm approaching this as what does Genesis 1 say to us? Because we're starting a study on Genesis, our origin story. So what does it supply to me? Well, it doesn't give me anything. That's not true. It gives you something. The Bible starts with four very important words to answer this question. In the beginning, God. Now, there's a lot in those four words. Well, when did the world begin? Here's your answer. What's the answer the Bible gives you? When did the world begin? What year? In the beginning. It began when it began. In the beginning. You can't go back any farther than that. In the beginning of what? In the beginning of our awareness of time and history. In the beginning. Now, here's what's interesting. That next word is where most people agree, yeah, well, the world began at the beginning. That makes sense. Okay. But then it's the next word, God. It does not say, in the beginning, God was born. We have a beginning, and all we know was around before the beginning was God from this passage. So what that says is that God pre-existed the beginning. So we learn some theology here. God is pre-existent. He's eternally existent. He has always existed. God has no beginning. When the world began, there was God. God existed before the beginning is what this tells us. This is extraordinarily controversial because most arguments that are unrelated to God creating things say there are things other than God that are eternal, namely nature. In other words, all the other arguments boil down to we got here by some accidental combination of molecules. Well, where did the molecules come from? The answer, they always were. They're eternal. So you believe that something can be eternal? Yes. 
And it makes more sense for you to believe that those molecules accidentally made this all because they're eternal than it does to say there is an uncaused cause named God. Who, Both of them require a leap of faith. They do. Now, I'm teetering into science, and I don't want to go there this morning. What I'm saying is the Bible suggests to us, tells us, reveals us, in the beginning was God. That his beginning is not the same as the beginning, because the Bible also tells us he has no beginning, he has no end. So the, one of the ways, the, the who of how the Bible answers the how the world began is the who is an eternally pre-existent, all-existent God, the uncaused, caused it. In the beginning, God created. Interesting Hebrew word here. It is a word that is never applied to anybody in Bible except for God because it means a certain type of creating. It is a creating ex nihilo, from nothing. In other words, he made something that had mass and matter and properties, and he made it from nothing. You're saying, I made it from scratch. No, scratch is still something. We humans, can we can create, but we can't create ex nihilo. We can rearrange existing things. God created the world from nothing. And here's another controversial thing, because other ideas of how the world began say, no, it was created from other things. Molecules got together, made a more complex and a more complex and a more complex and a more complex. And then over time, it all evolved to this. There was a big bang of what? Of matter. Where did it come from? It just always was. But you Christians are so crazy because you believe in a God that always was. Well, you believe in matter that always was. Right? But the Bible says that the way God created wasn't that he formed molecules together and made something out of something. He does that later on. You know, because he, he separated this from that, created an expanse and renamed it. But he created ex nihilo, out of nothing, which tells us something about his word. His word has, theologians call it agency, meaning his word has power to create from nothing. This is different from we humans. When I say, let there be light, one of the boys has to go to a light switch. When I say, let there be dinner, I have to pack my bags, right? <laughs> now, some of you say, well, there's artificial intelligence and Siri and all these other things. Now we can speak. Yes, but you're still, you're trying to get around the idea your words cannot create just by their audible characteristics something out of nothing. And some Christians have grabbed onto this hyperfaith people, right? Name it and claim it, say it and spray it, blab it and grab it. If you just speak it, you get it. Now, the Bible does say there's power in the spoken word. But you look at the caveat attached to it every time. In the name of Jesus. His word has agency. Mine doesn't. But it is to my great wise advantage to speak things and believe things and follow things and pursue things that align with the words of Jesus. That's where the power is. It's not in the audible quality of my voice. It's in aligning my voice with the word of Jesus. Now why, and this is a whole other sermon and I can't give it to you all together this morning, I'll just tease it for you a little bit. There's one other book in the Bible that tells us why God's word is different. It's the only other book of the Bible that starts with in the beginning. John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and then a couple verses down, the word was 
Jesus Christ. The Word was the Son of God. Why does God's Word have agency? Because His Word is a person. Not just a sound wave. I'll leave that with you and we'll keep going. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible, how did the world begin? A pre-existing, ever-existing, eternal God decided and chose to create the world out of nothing simply by speaking it into existence, period. Well, that's not very satisfying or complete, or it's entirely enough. Let me ask you a question. How many pages of science could I write for you about how to create something from nothing? What vocabulary would I use? I mean, look at how, how any people who see a UFO or a UAP or an FBI or a CIA or whatever they're calling them now, listen to them. They've absolutely, listen, they, they'll put it there. I'm not, I'm not trying to stumble into this thing or not. It, you know, I don't have a theological position on it. It seems to be that there's a lot of things flying around that we don't know what they are, whether it's ours or theirs or out there or in here. I don't have the answer for it. But the reality is people who see things that behave in a way their vocabulary, they don't have a whole lot to say about it other than they know they saw it. Well, what did it look like? Well, it looked like, and then the words get inexact. Well, how did it move? It was able, you can give a couple sentences. There's no, not a whole lot of how questions. And quite candidly, the how part doesn't. It's the why. Why are they here? What do they want? In the same way, it's like, look, at the end of the day, how much science is required if the true story is that an uncaused God created it out of nothing by speaking it? If that's the truth, that's enough. For the how. Well, it doesn't answer all of my questions. Exactly. But how important to the rest of your life are those specific questions? The how questions really aren't all that important. Doesn't mean that they're not important. But the how questions aren't the main ones that shape my life. It's the why questions. Why did God make this? Why? Why did he choose to create? Why me? Why here? Why do I feel the way that I do about nature and creation? That's what he's trying to address here. So those are the details of how. Might not answer all of your questions, but I think it's a pretty sufficient answer. Kind of ties everything up. But here's the, the other question I want to just conclude by answering this morning. From chapter one. Why did God make it? That's in the song too. And I think it's the bigger deal. The reason why God created the world was to expand his circle to include us. God made the world because he was lonely. Nope, we don't have a lonely God. In fact, he was completely fulfilled relationally, and he lets us in on that in Genesis 1. There is an us he talks about in Genesis chapter 1. Wasn't this poor, lonely, old, bearded guy who's just like, oh, I'm just so lonely, and I don't know what to do, and I need to create people to fill this void in my life. That's not an all-sufficient God. He's completely sufficient. He doesn't need me for anything. Doesn't All-sufficient God can't have needs. But there was something good he enjoyed. He enjoyed the community that was within himself. And I realize this is, you think about this too much and our circuits get overloaded. I'm me, me too. Because in Genesis 1.26, and I know when I preached on this the last time, ruffled some feathers. Um, I guess we all have feathers because we're birds. I'm not sure. But then God said, 
let us make. Us? Us. Well, who? Well, him and the angels, obviously. No, read the rest of the Bible. It says very clearly that God did not consult with the angels when it came to creation. They weren't in that circle. He said, let us. God, singular, let us. And I've shared with you before, this is the first time that God reveals to us that there is a communal, a community, or a three-in-oneness ingredient to who he is. I don't confess to understand this entirely. I don't. But I know the Bible teaches me that God is known as God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, God the Holy Spirit. There's a mysterious relationship there. But here's what I know when you read through the Bible. Let me just ask you, does God the Father love God the Son? He says he does. Does Jesus Christ ever say when he's here that I love my Father? Of course he does. In fact, a lot of the ways that Jesus describes love is in terms of the love relationship he has with his dad. The Holy Spirit, God's Spirit is part of this community that he has here. And I think what we need to understand is that the thing we know about God, if he's always the same and he never changes, then that absolute unity of love and adoration that exists within the community of who God is, that was around before the world began. What was God doing? He was enjoying the Son and enjoying the Spirit. The Spirit was enjoying the Father and enjoying the Son. They loved one another. They were pouring glory into one another. They were admiring one another's beauty. And it was a bond that they had that was good. It was very good. It is good. It is very good. It is the purest form of relationship. The highest form of relationship. Why did God make us? Let us make man in our image. Because why? God wanted to expand the circle of his family to invite us in. So that we could experience what he was already experiencing. He made you for community. He made you for relationship. He made you to be with him and for him to be with you. And for us to relate to one another in the same way that God relates. Or in another way, to love like he loves, to care like he cares, and to lead like he leads. That's why God didn't make us to fill some void in his life. God didn't make us to do a whole bunch, to build all kinds of things. God made you so you could enjoy being part of his ever-expanding circle of community. To be loved and to love. To relate to him, to love him, and to know him like he knows you. To be able to be part of this song of Genesis chapter 1. That's why he made us. Eight times in chapter 1, God creates by speaking. He never creates without speaking. His community, uh, this is a quote from Timothy Keller. God's community, which is the Trinity, is a circle of love. Creation reveals to us that God was a community of perfect love. The community of the Trinity was delighting in each other, pouring love into each other, enjoying each other's beauty and admiring each other. One day they said, let's expand this circle. Let's expand the community. Let's create beings that could become part of this circle. And I have to again shout out Tim Keller. I already knew when I was preparing this message that one of the things that dropped in my heart early in the week when I was preparing it was I've never quite understood or looked at this passage as poetry or in a song. So I was down, going down that trail already. And in my study, I came across a, a sermon that Tim Keller preached called The Song of Creation. And once I heard him explain this, I couldn't unhear it. And could, it just like a light bulb went on, went off from me. It's like, now I think I understand more deeply what Genesis 1 is revealing to us about why we're here. And so sharing that quote, I think, is appropriate. Why does God speak? 
Because speaking is how you conduct relationships. Why does God make us in his image? To reflect his love, care, and leadership. And so what happens is there is a song that God made nature to sing. Romans 1, Psalm 148. It says creation sings. Maybe not in the way that a human sings. But I don't know if you've ever heard the ocean sing. The ocean has an audible quality to it. God could have made it silent. It has an audible quality. Maybe trees don't sing so much trees dance to a song. Clouds, animals. Haven't you ever been in just a moment in nature where you were very, very aware of this? I used to be somebody who really kind of made fun of people who went out years ago. And these people who go out in the woods and hear from God. I'm just saying, yeah, they're kind of wacky people. You know, I'm, I'm German and we don't do that. You know, we don't, <laughs> we don't have feelings. And so, you know, I'd read books like by Richard Foster, Celebration of the Disciplines. And he'd talk about, there's some chapters I could really grab onto, like Bible study and fasting. And then he talked about meditation and nature. And I'm just like, that's wacky. I can't imagine like a, a nature retreat with God. Like I just, until... <laughs> This is when we were living in, in Georgia, and uh, we bought our first home there, and that's where we lived for the 10 years we lived in Georgia. And it hit me while I was driving in today. It never hit me until now, because my wife and I often say, oh, how much we miss that first house, and how much less it costed to live there than it does here in Maryland. <laughs> and it never occurred to us our address in Georgia was Raven Tree Lane. And like, maybe God even knew that that wouldn't be our permanent home. Maybe he was just setting us up to move from Raven Tree Lane to the land of the ravens. I don't know what it was, but <laughs> I remember one morning I'd opened up the, the, the garage door to my two-car garage, which if there's any tangible item that I've, I, I grieve over not having anymore, it is a garage. Uh, I miss that place. To, I just miss it. Uh, it's just a thing. I was... Walking past, I was walking to get in my car. I opened up the, got it, went out uh, to the pass-through door, opened up the garage door, it opened up. As I'm walking to my car, I've never done this in my life, ever, ever, ever. I felt something draw my attention out the garage door to just look across. Uh, and we lived in a, you know, in a, in a private community, and there were uh, Georgia pine trees everywhere, and they were like 50, 60 feet tall. There's a lot of them there. And so that was my main view when I walked across. I could see a little bit of the neighbor's house, but I saw all pine trees. For whatever reason, that morning, the soundtrack, I heard not an airplane, not a car. And I was immediately arrested by this, the absence of man-made noise. It was a windy day, and I remember it being windy. Now, I could not see the wind, but I looked up on the ground. You know, the trees were pretty solid, but as I looked farther up, I saw all those Georgia pine trees swaying in unison. They're not like doing, they were like all moving in the same direction. I could hear the wind pass through the trees and I could see them dance. And I, I even feel, I feel a little weird even just saying it. It was a very spiritual moment for me and it touched me. It touched me because I was immediately aware of there is a symphony of something going on out here that is, it's been going on all the time and I've never noticed it. And there I'm standing and I'm like, wow, uh, who told the wind to move? I think it's molecules. An object at rest stays at rest unless, so what was the force that told these molecules to move? Well, yeah, what, who, who told the wind to move? Well, it's the laws of thermodynamics. Okay. Who told those stationary molecules to move? 
And those molecules didn't say, I don't think so. They just did what they were made to do. And then here are these trees. You know what they're doing? They're dancing to some kind of music I can't hear. And yet I'm hearing it. And in that moment, I felt beauty and I felt little, but I also felt very broken. And I don't know why it was, it was beautiful and there was some pain in it at the same time. I don't know why. But I can tell you this week, I finally, 10 years later, I think I know why. It's my concluding statement today. Yes, it's 12.09. Your, your old boy can learn new tricks. It's because nature is singing a song to its creator. And it's calling us in. You know, national anthem, you either sing or you listen or you're just mad. I don't know why. It's a divisive thing, not the best example. But nature is encouraging everybody else to, to sing along. And yet, here's why it was painful. I can't come in because I don't want to sing the same song the wind was singing. Or the trees. Or the ocean. Or the canyons. Or the sunrise. Or the sunset. Or the birds. The horses. And all the animals that God creates. I, there's a part of my heart that doesn't feel like I can sing their song. Now, let me make it less abstract and more concrete. I think the lyrics to the song are right here. They're right here. If you read through Romans, if you read through Psalm 148, if you read through Zephaniah, you'll see different biblical authors cueing us into the song that God's creation makes. In fact, David says the trees sing a song, the cedars sing a song, the animals sing a song, the, the swimming sea creatures sing a song, the penguins sing a song, the skies sing a song. They're singing a song. Here's a song they're singing. My creator says I'm good. My creator looks at me and he says I'm beautiful. He says, you're doing exactly what I made for you to do. You stars, you're twinkling, twinkling little stars. Sun, you're shining. Waves, you're moving. Wind, you're either blowing or being still. Trees, you're dancing in the wind. You're doing what I made for you to do. And all of creation is saying, my creator looks at me and says, I'm good. Look at you being exactly what I made for you to be. And they're Drawing all this attention upward to God. Like, how can you look at some of these things and say, mm, this was an accident? Someone showed me a picture after the first service. I say, man, that touched me this morning. You might not know this about me, but I've, I've really learned to connect to God deeply through what you just said. And was showing me pictures in his phone, just inviting me into some of those experiences that he's had of saying, and he's like, and I look at this sunrise right here, and I just say, how can, how can I say in my heart there is no God? He said, look at, it's almost like he's saying, look at the sky being the color that God asked it to be. And the beauty of it draws our attention upward to the artist. And that's the song that creation is singing. And in chapter one, we see what God sings back. God completes the circle. God says, you're good. You're good. I see you. I see you. I made you. And you're good because you're exactly how I made you to be. I made you to be good. And you are good. And I love you. And I adore you. And you're precious to me. And you're good. And you're good. God said. And it happened. And he saw. And he said it was good. And that's the song that God is singing back to creation. You see, it's a call and response song. 
God created it as good, and then his good creation is just being what he called it to be. And they said, my creator says that I'm good. And God says back, you are good, and I love you. That's the song he wants us to be in, and yet we humans are different because we're the ones who, unlike the wind, say, I don't want to blow that way today. I don't feel like dancing like that. Who are you to tell me who I am and what I can do? Who are you to tell me what I can be? And here's the result of all that. Here's the lyric we can't sing. My creator looks at me and thinks I'm good. Because we know we're not good. And so I can't join in. I feel like I can't join in. I can't sing like the trees. My creator looks at me and says, you're exactly how I want you to be and you're good. My creator looks at me and says, you're not exactly how I wanted you to be. You're broken. You're not good. And my, my mind keeps telling me that. I'm telling you, that's at the core. People who can't join in this song to their creator, it's because either they don't like the lyrics or they know the lyrics and feel like they can't sing along sincerely. I know God wanted me to be good, but I've fallen short of his glory and I'm not good. And I can't. When I see the song, I feel ashamed and I feel pain. Because that sunset's being exactly what it's supposed to be and I'm not being exactly who I'm supposed to be. And we see that in this song. In Genesis 1, we see why man's fall was so devastating because what it meant was we couldn't, we were kind of excused from the choir at that point. We could sing the words, but they weren't coming from a heart that believed it. So how do we respond to the creation song of Genesis 1? How do we respond to these four verses? You know, understand a little bit of how, but it's why God, why God made the world. He made it to expand his circle so that we could come in. He wanted to expand the family. He wanted more people to come into that community that he already could uniquely provide of just saying, come into this community where it is love, where it is joy, where it is identity, where it is fellowship, where it is purpose, where it is meaning, where it is perfect and whole and good. And then you and I come to the conclusion, well, we're not. How do we respond? We look to Jesus because he removed the barrier and welcomes us back into the song. Didn't he? Isn't that what he did? You see, Jesus is good. He's altogether good. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether holy. And you and I, if we've read through the rest of the story, we understand that God was not content to have us outside of this song. He wanted us to come back into the circle, even though he made us in the circle. And we chose, that's too much for us. And there's still people who say either God is too much or too little for people. You have some people, following Jesus is too much. It's too restrictive. It's too legalistic. It requires too much faith, too much of my time. It requires me to like organize religion. Here's all the reasons. God asks too much. Church asks too much. Christians ask too much. So therefore, no, he asks too much. Or they say he's not enough. Well, I'm saved, but... I'm still not in love. I'm still not wealthy. I'm still not this. I'm still not that. I'm still sick. I need Jesus and I need all these other things to feel good. He's either too much or he's not enough. But God said, I'm not going to give up on this. There's an incomplete. I am damming up all of this love that I want to pour out on my creation. And it's just waiting until they come back into the circle again. And then it is not like it is released in one cascade. Like the one child that comes home. Versus the 99 who are still in the flock. They're all in the same amount of love. But one of them wasn't receiving it. And it's just getting built up. 
That's why, that's why some of you, when you came to Jesus, just felt this flood of God's love overwhelm your life because it, it's just been storing up until you were ready to join the song again. Jesus dealt with the barrier because he recognized we could never be good enough to feel good enough to sing the song that says, my creator looks at me and he says that I'm good. He says that I'm holy. I'm perfect. And so what Jesus did was he stepped in and became the me that I could have been, but I didn't. He came and he lived the life I should have lived. He was tempted in the same ways that I was tempted. And yet he never failed. He was always obedient to God. He always imaged God perfectly. He never said no to God. He never knew what it was like to live outside of that barrier until that one moment on the cross, he finally, the only time he speaks out in a neg what sounds negative on the cross is when because of the sin being laid upon him, the song was interrupted. Went, oh my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And that to Jesus trumped all the physical. It's not that he didn't feel the physical pain, but he, we don't have a whole lot of how he emoted to that. But man, when he felt that separation, when the song, when he couldn't receive back in that song, because of sin being laid upon him, that jarred him in a way where he could empathize with how we feel being cut out of the song. And yet, he paid for us a debt that we could not pay. And he presented that payment to his father and said, will you accept my one sinless life? As a, as, as a final, ultimate payment for everybody's sins forever. And God said yes. And the receipt that the transaction was processed is the resurrection from the dead of Jesus. Because he defeated two things. He defeated death and he defeated sin. And you and I, if we're going to be saved, we need someone who can defeat the two things we can't, which is death and sin. And Elon Musk hasn't figured either one out yet. And what it does is it makes it possible for you and I, because of God's grace and through our faith, to come back into the circle again. Not based on our achievement, but based on Jesus' resume. God says, because of my son's payment, in light of what he's done, I will consider, you have a choice. You can come to God on your resume or Jesus' resume. That's your choice. If you want Jesus' resume, God will allow his son's resume to be applied to yours. So that when he sees you, he says you are good. You're exactly who I made you to be. I love you. You're in me and I'm in you. You're my daughter. You're my son. You sit alongside my son and my family. And I want you now to be part of the circle. And when you start to feel a goodness in you, that is not from you, but it's been gifted to you. And as a result of that gifted goodness, you now can receive the waterfall of God's love for you. Let me tell you how that starts healing your mind. How it starts healing your thinking. How it starts repairing the way you look at yourself and others and God. You feel like, I don't deserve this. You're right. We don't. That's why it's given by grace. You see, God wants you to be back in this song. God wants you to be able to sing to him, to say to him, to look to him, to think of him. My maker loves me. My maker sees me, he knows me, he may be, and he thinks I'm good. <laughs> Little does he know, right? No, he thinks I'm good. 
I feel his pleasure over me. And when God hears that from us, he says, you're not crazy. I do think you're good. I do. There's nothing better than knowing your maker thinks you're good. And there's nothing worse than being convinced that your maker thinks you're broken. And all of that is answered in the story of the gospel. It begins with the song in Genesis chapter 1. God opening up that to us. Haven't you ever been, worship team, will you come? Haven't you ever been worshiping God, maybe through song? And you're worshiping him, and you're in essence singing to him or telling him how good you think he is, how wonderful you think he is. And in that moment, what you aren't expecting is you feel some kind of response coming down to you. And it's not that God worships us, but I will suggest to you, you can experience this. When you open up your mouth to give God praise, you're good, you're holy, you're lovely, I trust you, I want to be like you. And then you feel in your heart that it's not falling on deaf ears, you feel a response. You feel feel him drawing you close. You feel his love overwhelming you. Please don't keep your dad at arm's, arm's reach. I mean, there's times, neither of my boys are super affectionate with me, and that's okay. I'm German, right? I'm good. And yet, I find sometimes in self unique feelings for physical affection that I guess maybe are just unique to a dad and his kids. I don't need a lot of it, but every now and again, I do want to give, you know, I want to give my boys a hug. And I'm sensitive as they get older. It's not something I'm going to force on them or make them do. You know, I've thought through all that. But there is something that they like, like sometimes I ask my six-year-old, hey, can daddy have a hug? No. Okay, answer is no. And there is, you know, there's a little part of me that's like, oh, there's just, don't keep your dad at arm's length. He sings over you. He sings a song you might not even believe about you because it sounds too good to be true. In this case, it's true. If you believe he made the world, then you have to believe he loves you. If you can believe that he has no beginning or no end, if you can have that much faith, why can't you believe he feels about you the way he says he does? It's because of sin. Sin convinces us, I can't sing that song. My creator doesn't think I'm good. No, but Jesus is, and in him, I am who he says I am. So if you can believe the truth about God, you need to believe the truth about what God says about you too. And I don't want you to be outside of this song anymore. I want you to pull up a seat and be in this circle. I want you to come inside to this community. You come in not because of your achievement or how good you made yourself, because you took a shower today and you feel good. You confessed twice this morning and we're good. No, you come in because of your faith in Jesus. and Grace alone, faith alone, and Jesus alone. I want you to join this song again. And I pray over you this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with humble hearts. I just want to ask church family, those of you who are listening, maybe watching on the live stream, are you outside of this circle? This circle that God expanded when he created the world. Are you outside of that circle of his love and of his community, of his kingdom? I want you to know he's inviting you in. He's inviting you back in. He wants you to come in today because there's been love waiting for you. That's been, it's not been given away to somebody else. It's been stored up, dammed up, waiting for you. And he wants you to join the song. He loves you. You are beautiful to him. You're his creation. He made you. He wants you to be in him, and he wants to be found in you. And the choice is up to you. Do you want to yield to the pull 
of the song today? Or will you resist outside of it and push back and sit on the outside looking in, wanting to be drawn in and yet wanting to, there will always be tension in your heart over that. Why don't you just surrender to him today? Why don't you just surrender? Bible says all you need to do to come into the circle is believe and repent. You have to believe you need to be saved. You have to believe that Jesus and Jesus only can save you. And you have to believe that he will save you if you ask him. And you have to repent. That means to change course. To reverse your thinking about who's in charge of your life. And so what that means is symbolically, it's like you're, like if your life is a kingdom and you're the king of your life right now, it's like you stepping off of that throne and saying, Jesus, you sit in that place. I'm not going to be the Lord anymore. I'm going to be the servant. You be the Lord. I trust you to lead me. If that's what you believe in your heart and that's what you want, then the Bible says all you need to do is confess that to God. He will hear you and he will save you. That's it. So why don't you do that right now? Use your own words. Tell him what you believe. Tell him you're ready to repent and give your life back to him today. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I need to repent. Today, that's what I'm doing. I need you to save me. Only you can save me. And I have faith to believe you will save me. And I'm asking you to save me. So, thank you for saving me. I'm making a choice in this moment to surrender control of my life to you, Jesus. Which means I'm going to live your way. Think your way. Feel your way. And while I don't expect that to all change entirely to perfection at the snap of a finger. Today begins my journey with you. And I know with you living inside of me, you'll make me day by day into the person that you've called me to be. So today I sing to you, you're good, you're loving, and you, you say that I'm good. And today I hear you saying back to me, I love you. You're beautiful to me. You're good. In your name I pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.